This week, we're in California with racing icon Danica Patrick. One day you're just gonna be doing the same thing that you've been always doing, and you just win. And it just worked out, and I won. As one of the few women in motorsports, Patrick gained incredible fame face judgment throughout her career. I try to not stand out as a girl. Like I don't want to be describing what the car's doing and have them be so distracted by something that's feminine. And fought to become the greatest female driver in IndyCar history. She later made the jump to stock car racing, but by 2017, her professional and personal life was in disarray. Leaving a relationship, letting go of my job, and doing something else, there was a lot going on. Patrick opens up about her decision to retire, the relationship that divided her family. I look back and I'm like, I was manipulated. How so? And the politics of NASCAR sponsorship. You know, they had to be motivated to go find me sponsors, and you know, motivation varied. All that's coming up next, right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So I wanted to start by taking you back to when you were growing up. Um, explain how your sister Brooke was at least partly mm. responsible for getting you into racing. Totally responsible. Um, yeah, well, when we were kids, um, my dad's always been involved in racing, and we used to go to the dirt track on Sunday night. My dad would work on a car, and we were too young to get in the pits. So we would get, like, mo mom and dad would give us 20 bucks, and we'd sit in the stands, and we would go and kill the concession stands and get you know like the rainbow snow cones and like licorice like that was three feet long and whatever other candy I'm sure we could find and um and so we'd watch dirt racing on Sunday Sunday nights and um my sister wanted to start racing and she wanted to be the number that my dad worked on 65 so I think she just wanted a number with number 65 on something, but um, like it could be that simple when we're kids, couldn't it be? Um, so anyway, and uh, there was a friend of hers that was in her class that raced go-karts. So um, they, ironically enough, lived in our neighborhood. So we went down, ironic, I mean, I grew up in a town of 5,000, so I guess it's not that ironic. Roscoe, Illinois. Roscoe, Illinois, yeah. I always say Chicago, and then they're like, oh, I know Chicago. I'm like, okay, do you know Rockford? And they're like, oh yeah. I'm like, do you know Rock? No, I don't know Roscoe. Um, and so we went and looked at the go-karts and went to some races and, um, and started. And so she wanted to do it. And I feel like just in like the normal sibling sort of way, um, I didn't want to get left out. I'm sure there's things that went the other way too, but I was like, all right, I'll do it too. And she ends up eventually losing interest. Your interest only progresses. All of a sudden you're having baseball cards made with your picture on it, uh, you know, t-shirts with your picture. What did the family weekend routine uh, eventually become? Um, it became leaving on Friday after school to go to the go-kart to, to leaving on Friday morning, to leaving on Thursday night, to leaving on Thursday morning. and. Uh, I say that, but then usually mom and dad would get home from work because they still worked full time. Um, and we would get in trouble because we didn't have the coolers packed. We were never ready. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we'd load the trailer up uh, and, and head on out. Uh, and we'd go, we'd drive anywhere from locally at the very beginning for the first year. So that was only, you know, 30, 40 minutes away to, um, it went so far as to, uh, probably as far as us driving 20 hours. I mean, we go to Canada, wow. Florida, North Carolina. Um, and then I raced out West, but we, we, we would get someone like my dad had someone at work that would drive the trailer out there and we'd, we'd fly. But, but yeah, I mean, Phoenix, California, um, 
so we kind of raced all over the place. But my mom and dad would, you know, my dad especially would just pound some candy and Mountain Dew <laughs> and drive from the time that we were done on Sunday afternoon or evening at the track all the way home and go to work in the morning. And you were involved in a bunch of different sports growing up, volleyball, basketball, yeah. baseball. You were oh, a cheerleader. Yeah. Um, Started with t-ball. Wait, coach pitch, then t-ball, right? Or was it t-ball, then coach pitch? Um, and then it was uh, track, and I did band, choir, uh, basketball, volleyball, cheerleading, tumbling. I took tumbling. What was it about racing then that, you know, even that early on made you know that's what you wanted amid all the other stuff you were involved in? You know, I, I loved setting goals and accomplishing them. I loved um, the process of getting faster over the weekend. I loved the mental discipline. I mean, you know, working with my dad on these things, like, but you know, I would execute and I would even, I would think of little tricks too to do out there. Like I would reach my hand down, like I was gonna tune the carburetor to go faster. Say a lot of times out in the lead and I'd do that and I wouldn't actually do anything. It was just to make them think I was doing something so that, and then they would do it and they would start going slower. Cause <laughs> I knew it wasn't time yet, like nothing too hot and we don't need to richen it up yet. Um, but I would trick them, like I would play little games. And I mean, I did that into my IndyCar days. I mean, I remember watch, I remember racing at uh, Milwaukee, which is a short little flat one mile track. And I would come down the front straightaway and I would dart out like I had like a really big run. And sure enough, they'd leave a lane for me and I'd pass them. Tell them about the uh, public speaking course, the 12 week oh long God, course yeah. you the took The Dale Carnegie yeah. speaking course, that was awful. I was 14, I think I was 14 years old. Um, and my basically mom, dragged to do it. My mom had to drive me there. The average age in there I brought down by a decade, I'm sure, because everybody's like a professional. They're at least 30 some years old in the class, 40, 50 years old, and they're learning like, like techniques to how to do better business and like there was a whole segment on remembering names which I clearly didn't pay attention in because I'm horrible at that <laughs> um, but uh, but that was painful um, one of my sponsors uh, paid for it they uh, they said hey we'll we'll pay for you to go to a to go to a speaking course and I guess you know all these things are just really interesting because somebody saw something in me they're not gonna you're not gonna send someone to a speaking course to learn how to like do something that's going to be important later in life if you don't think somebody's got it, right? So, you know, they saw something and they wanted to make sure that I was prepared. So they paid for it and I had to go. And I think it was like, you could only miss two of 14 classes. So <laughs> I remember bawling a couple times before I had to go. It seems a pivotal moment in really your life was England, not only like what happened there, but how you ended up getting through and overcoming it. Um, you're at the Brickyard in high school. Lynn St. James introduces you to an heir to a prominent Texas oil family. Yeah. Um, what does he say that pretty much convinced you this is what you had to do in going to England? Yeah, uh, this, um, this British guy um, who worked for this family, this really wealthy family said, you could learn more in one year in England than five years here. And I was like, well, that sure sounds like something I need to do then, you know? And so, from that point on, I go racing and win more and do really well. And um, two years later, when I was 16 years old, they contacted us again. It was during during the 8500 month of May time, and they said, "We've been following your career for the last two years. We'd really like to talk to you." And so, um, we have this joke like stuff that you do and don't want to do, but I always end up doing the right thing. And I remember I, I didn't want to go, and even my dad didn't really want to go. It's a four-hour drive 
from where we live down to Indy and um, it was raining out and it was just for the meeting and it was like, do we really need to go? Is it really? Well, we ended up going and then sure enough, they're like, we want to take you to England. And um, so I went that summer and tested a car and then went back at the end of the year for the winter series race and then moved back the next year and pulled out of high school when I was 16 in the middle of my junior year. And so at that point in time, I went, I want to be a race car driver. And then I was like, okay, I got to make this work. So I just left high school. <laughs> and, and I mean, credit to your parents for like, believing in you enough and letting you go as just a high school kid moving alone like to England. When I look back so. and think of the likelihood right. of me making it, the likelihood of any athlete making it all the way to the top is just so slim. I mean, it just is. And so for them to go, yeah, sure, get your D GED, Danica. Like, just go try this, and then hopefully it all works out. Like, that's a bold move. I know my mom was really sad. Like, my mom cried from what I understand pretty regularly of me being gone. But what they said was they were like, well, it would be worse if you didn't have the opportunity. How well do you remember what the owner said out there after you finished better than your teammates one time? Yeah, well, we were at Donington, which is a track in England, and we were testing and it was, um, I think it was kind of raining on and off that day. And I remember sitting on pit lane, there were some chairs and, one of the cars pulled in and asked who was fastest and like the owner stuck his head in the window and was like, the freaking girl's fastest, what are you doing? Like as in, it shouldn't be that way. And uh, that's always been the biggest struggle is getting people to really believe in me, believe in what I believe I can do. Um, and it's fine, I've had people, people believe that, yes, but it takes a lot more than just one person on a team to believe that. The whole, like, you're only as strong as your weakest link. If, if the collective doesn't believe in it, um, or most all, then you're not going to get what you need. And How did that affect you then? Uh, I just remember feeling um, disappointed. Disappointed that uh, I wasn't acknowledged for what I was doing partied a little too much. Uh, you're confronted by your parents. I didn't party too much. Party the appropriate amount. Okay. No, you know what I did? I, I was going out like I'm a teenager, right. but I wasn't, I wasn't worse than it. I mean, I was, I went out less than everybody else, but it doesn't matter. People um, are always looking for a reason. You know, I think when you stand out and you're different, people are looking for a reason. And, um, but yes, I was, I was too, having too much fun. What do you say when your parents confront you about it? With the sponsor pulls out yeah. and your um, parents confront you? Well, I came home from the season and the winter and um, I remember being sat down and I think that my managers were saying they weren't going to keep going with me. And um, so uh, this was after year one and um, of the three years that I was there eventually. And um, they said that I was going out too much and partying and not serious and not taking it, taking it seriously. And uh, so, yeah, I just kind of like broke down and ended up, I got a job. I worked at the Limited 2, <laughs> T-O-O, uh, for a while. <laughs> I didn't do very well at that. I didn't do very well at you all. You did No, no, that's not my, that's not my jam. I remember <laughs> um, 
I had worked there for like two days and somebody wanted a certain lotion or something. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll go find it. And they're like, I came and asked you because I thought you'd know where it was. And like the only, here's the problem. My rude is like so much worse than your rude. You'll never remember the first rude. So, um, so that's all I'm gonna say about that. And then um, the next time was someone checking out and they, they like we sold garbage cans, I guess. And there was a little garbage can. And they're like, do you have a box for this? And I was like, I'm sorry, ma'am. You know, I've checked, no, we don't have a box. Well, if you sell it, you should have a box for it. And so of course I snip back and I'm like, well, given the fact that it's the only thing this size in the in the whole place, you know, like it, it's probably why we don't have a box for it. Like <laughs> I got written up twice in like a month. Anyway, it wasn't really for me, but I got a job. And then when I went back, that's when I lived with the family, like on lockdown. How, how did you convince the sponsor to s stay with you? Just that I would change and move and do, do things differently and yeah, commit all the way and try it again. So Bobby Rahal, who was um, obviously impressed appropriately so by the lengths to which you went to advance your um, career, says, you know, you yeah. came back from England uh, with your tail between your legs, a shadow of your former self. Mm -hmm. um, in what ways? I, I went over like super raw, open, friendly, trusting, and was not treated well, not respected as a friend even, let alone a driver, and just really learned that being open didn't get me anywhere other than being taken advantage of um, and um, feeling... Why did you feel that way? Um, well, because I was never making real friends. Like when I, le when I left, nobody ever called me, ever. I mean, I spent three years there and saw certain people a lot. And, you know, there was never like a, hey, how's it going, you know? three years and so never had real friends and simple things like I'd be going back to the States for a week or two and I wouldn't want to leave my car at Heathrow and I could never find a friend that would be willing to drop me off at the airport like simple stuff like that where you just knew you didn't have real friends and so which at the times like pretty 16, like devastating 17, 18, yeah. 19 years old like you just want a friend yep. and so um, very one-sided and um, and so I just feel like I was taught to not trust and generally not have a lot of faith in people. June 2002 Milwaukee uh, you and I think your dad were there to like watch the race networking um, what did you ask Ray Hall yet again and how did he respond differently? Well, this was another one of those examples of not really wanting to go to the track, but always doing the right thing. So um, dad, did, dad said, you know, like we should go up to Milwaukee and, um, and to the track and go walk around and see how it's going and you know, see if we can find some, find a ride for me. And, uh, and we had done that a lot and I just was over it. I was like, dad, it's not doing any good. Like it's just, it's miserable, nothing, no one ever wants to do anything. I don't want to go uh, and he's like, Let's just go for an hour. And just before this had happened, I had a random phone call with somebody saying, uh, hey, I have a potential primary sponsor for you to race Atlantics if you have a letter of intent from Bobby Rahal to say that you're gonna, like he's gonna have a team and you'll race for him. And um, so anyway, um, go to the track there for less than 45 minutes in the hospitality area for for Bobby's team and he comes walking in and I'm just getting it I'm getting it done and so I walk over and I'm like 
hey, I've heard we can have a full primary sponsor if there's a if there's a letter of intent that says that we're gonna have we're, I'm gonna race for you, and he just said okay. And then later on, this is in recent time, I found out like everybody afterwards is like, what are you doing? And he was like, what am I doing? <laughs> um, but two weeks later, we went out to Laguna Seca and had a press conference and signed the letter of intent and um, sure enough, started the team. And If not for that, how do you think your career trajectory would have been different? I don't know because, I mean, at that I mean, point that in time, at that point career? time in, let's see, in 2001, I raced about five races in the Formula Ford Series in England at the beginning of the year came home, didn't race the rest of the year. At the end of 2001, I got a ride to drive sports cars back in America, and then the team didn't end up racing the next year because of certain technical reasons, so I didn't actually race. And then at the end of that then that year, 2002, um, after Bobby said he'd signed me, we, we raced five Barber Dodge Pro Series races to kind of familiar, familiarize myself with some tracks, and then we started racing Atlantics in 2003. And then fast forward to 2004, all of a sudden in May of 2004, after racing for him for a year and a half, he announces at media day at the Indy 500, um, where I was not racing at, that I was gonna race the Indy 500 the next year. And I was like, what? Like, it just came out of nowhere. So, yeah, I have no idea where I would be, um, which is why I'm so grateful, which is why when he needs something, you know, I wanna be a friend and help, and uh, I'm grateful. When he approached you about FHM Magazine, uh, what was your initial reaction? Yeah, that was like one of those pivotal things for me to do something so feminine, um, so sexy. Uh, I think I wore pleather, so I don't know what else you want to call that. But, um, but uh, to do something like that, I was open to it. I don't really care. Um, I was interested, but I was then also a little afraid like what people might think of me and if they would dismiss me even more as a driver because I was doing those things. But what I, what I realized afterwards is it drummed up a whole lot of attention and it didn't take away from what I was capable of as a driver. Uh, so. And correct me it, if I'm wrong, but up to that point, you were always trying to fit in yeah. and be one of the guys. I tried and this to not was... stand out as a girl. Like you try and just like, you know, not wear like nail polish and, you know, just, I mean, I'm, I'm already a girl. So like, I don't need to drive that home or make people, I don't want to be describing what the car's doing and have them be so distracted by something that's feminine and not listen to me basically. So, so yeah, I always found myself kind of veering away from being like using being a girl, using being a girl to do anything. And then after I did that, I realized that it's part of who I am and it's also what can give me an advantage. To, to what extent o overnight did how some people viewed you almost changed in terms of all of a sudden you became like this sex symbol? Well, you know, you do one thing like that and it opens the door and um, it opened the door for me too. Like I ended up doing, you know, Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue then and, and various different things, so. Um, Was it that quickly of a change? Uh, yeah, I think that I just ended up realizing the power of using all of your attributes to your advantage. And I, and I always say to people that I never did anything that I was uncomfortable with. So it wasn't like I, I felt like, oh, I shouldn't do this, or like I felt in, insecure, like, um, like I was stepping outside of my own personal boundaries. 
And that's another thing that I felt like it gave me an opportunity to say is, is that we're all very multidimensional people as human beings. We're not just like, you're not just, you don't just work and interview people. You're like, oh, well, I also like this and I like to travel or maybe I like photography, maybe I like cooking. So, so as a female, you know, do I like to be, do I like my job as a race car driver and to be tough and aggressive and go do that? Yeah, but I also like to be feminine and sexy and that's another part of me too. And so why, why can't I show off all those sides of my personality and use them to my advantage then. It was fun and it was beneficial and this is an extension of my personality. And as long as I didn't do anything that I was uncomfortable with, um, I was fine. So your dad was a snowmobile racer, finished in the uh, you know top 10, met your mom at a, a race. Um, they had a variety of businesses when you were growing up, uh, oil change garage, coffee shop, drywall company, commercial glass business. What mm -hmm. do you know about what all the work entailed? Well, I think that's probably why I'm very um, entrepreneurial based um, because I saw that. I saw that so? growing up. Yeah, I think so. Like I'm the kind of person that thinks, oh, um, I, w I, I, I love health and fitness or something and like, you know, a workout, pro I'll just write it. Or food, like, oh, I'll just create a product and sell it. Like I'm not, I'm always thinking of doing it myself. Like, how do I take this on myself? How do I create the business for myself um, instead of work with someone else? Your dad, I, I think, was working seven days a week at the time, really long hours. Your sister, Brooke, was telling me the other day that she basically doesn't have a memory of your dad that predates when you guys were racing. And I think you guys started racing at like eight and 10, ten years yep, old. That's right. How true yeah. is that for you too? Definitely, he was gone before we got up in the morning. Um, he had a long drive to work where he worked for a while when we were really, really young. And then um, I guess based on that long drive home and mom probably putting us to bed at 6 p.m., we never really, we didn't see him when we, you know, at the end of the day either. Um, so, and then with, you know, working on the weekends and like we just didn't really see him. So racing became a, a, a way of spending time together as a family on the weekends. That's why we started. The differing roles your parents played in your career over the years would be what? Mama's referee, and she would say that. There was plenty of times we would be driving home from a go-kart race and, you know, everybody's crying and dad's yelling and um, critiquing me, judging me on what I didn't do right. And mom would try and chime in and she's, I remember her like crying, being like, I'm sick of being the referee. Brooke was always the positive one. Dad was always, well, I guess, how do you, I wanted to just say negative one. I mean, yes, he was, but um, I- he, he was the emotional one like you. Yeah, mm-hmm, and um, irrational. <laughs> um, the best way I can describe him is that he, you know, and I did describe him this way a long, long time ago is that he, he never told me I had to do anything. It wasn't like he told me I had to be a race car driver, come on, you know, keep pushing. He, he would ask me on a regular basis if I wanted to keep going. He's like, if you want to do this, I'll help you. He's like, if you want to quit, that's fine. And they never let me quit in the middle. It would be like at the end of the season, I could have. And no matter what I did, whether it was, you know, coach pitch, t-ball, basketball season, racing, um, finish whatever you've started, at least for the season. And, um, and I always said I wanted to do it. He's like, all right, well, I'm gonna help you do it then. I'm gonna help you do it the right way. And so he, I described him as a puller, not a pusher.
We were in the UK not too long ago taping an episode with uh, Lewis Hamilton. Oh. Um, he said the hardest thing he's ever had to do in his life was firing his dad as manager. Oh my God. To what extent was it the same for you? Oh yeah, that was horrible. My, both my parents worked for me, both my parents. And they sold the glass company so that they could come, you know, manage me, drive my bus, do everything. I think that it's best to not have your parents working for you. I do, especially when the boss is the child. <laughs> I think that's a really, really tough dynamic. Like, how do you hold your parents accountable for the little things when they're your parents? Um, you know, on top of that, I was pushed into um, certain family dynamics based on a relationship that were that were not okay. Like I look back and I'm like, I was manipulated. I was, How you so? know, um, you know, I was in a relationship where I was kind of forced to choose and um, push my parents out, and it was really sad. But it it was just it was my reality then. And so once I started understanding what I really wanted in life and who I was. I realized I, how important my family was to me. I didn't see my fam. I didn't see my parents for five years at Christmas or Thanksgiving. Like I didn't see them for the holidays for five years. Why? Because I was forced to choose. Because they were taking advantage of me. Because they weren't doing a good job. Because they were, you know, didn't have my best interest at heart. This is what your partner at the time yeah, was telling you. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. so. Did you part believe of that, it? Part, well, I mean, when you're manipulated, of course you are. You, of course you believe bad things. And some things are true, right? Some things are true. But, um, but I, I know, like, look, I know they don't, parents don't always do the right thing, but they, they, I think they always want the best. I don't think they always know how. <laughs> because they've got parents, too, that screwed it up. And their parents screwed it up, and their parents screwed it up. Like, there's always, nobody's perfect. Um, and so... Um, so yeah, did they do some things wrong? Like, sure. Like, mom, did you need to go buy that computer? Where did, where did you get that computer? Well, I bought it. What'd you buy it with? Well, I bought it on the business. I'm like, did you ask? You know, I mean, that kind of stuff is not acceptable. But you know, like, they didn't know any different. That's how they did everything. You know, they just, they just, they didn't know. Like, that was just a super hard time. And um, uh, I mean, how did you tell them? Uh, well, I'm sure I was. I'm sure it was a super insensitive, manipulated coaching into writing something down in a spiral notebook instead of just going, speak from the heart, call your parents. Like, it was freaking planned out and every word was spoken and probably read. And it's the right thing to do, but it's still very, very uncomfortable. And there was a, you know, at that point in time, there was definitely a lot less talking to them and didn't see them as much. Um, your sister said one of the hardest parts was just figuring out what all of a sudden they'd be doing on race weekends because how strange was it to ask them not to come to race weekends anymore when they yeah. basically seen yeah, every, every one of single your one of races my races oh up. yeah that was all part of it too like you can't come to the track anymore like it was harsh and um wasn't all me that's for sure and so that was a very difficult time the whole dynamic of family is all complicated because it's all emotional and it's all personal um, so, um, and as a budding human being, you're also trying to figure yourself out and who you are as an adult trying to deal with adults. And so, um, and all find your new place in the world as, you know, competent human beings taking care of your own bills and whatnot. So it was a super difficult time. How did you um, get through it? I mean, in the end, like when I was separated from, you know, th that person, like, honestly, I called my parents and everything was 100% normal within 
Right away. Really? Right away. As soon as I called my parents when I was on my own, they were, it was all normal. I, I can't, I mean, it's just, it's wonderful. So your dad, I think, had been going to the Indianapolis 500 since uh, 1974. Oh, I'm sure um, he's got, then, you know, shirtless photos to prove it. <laughs> uh, and then uh, all of a sudden his daughter's racing in it. Why do you think it's still emotional for him when he talks about it? Because he's super emotional. <laughs> I think, you know, um, like, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm the same way. But a lot of times before the Indy 500, I think he just can feel the the gravity of the situation, the perspective, and, you know, would hug me before the race and would be welled up with tears in his eyes saying, good luck. I'm like, Dad, stop. I got to keep it together. I got a job to do. Um, but he's just an emotional guy, and he, um, you know, that's the fire in him. That's what makes him super out of control, angry at times, but also super emotional and sad, but grateful and happy at times. So um, that's just him. He's just loaded with emotion. I, I wonder if you still feel the same now, but you've been quoted before as saying um, not going for the victory in that first 500 was the greatest regret of your life. Um, why? Uh, well, because they're hard to come by. Um, period. Uh, and, you know, being experienced now looking back, like, I would have rather hoped for a yellow at the very end and been, and been, stayed in the lead than, you know, playing it safe to make sure that I had enough fuel to finish the race. Like, much cooler to run out of fuel in the lead than it is to just drop back at the end. I mean, it was still a great story, but, you know, Play the lucky dog card and, you know, hope for hope for some luck where you you can win the race. So anyway, I would have just banked on hoping I had enough or a yellow instead of just detuning myself. And you even felt that way at the time, even given the history of it? I mean, you know, the when the woman first qualified for the Indy 500, women weren't even allowed in the pits or the garage yeah. or the press box. And yeah. all of a sudden you're yeah. a hair away from I know. Uh, winning it. And of course, this is not what I knew then, which is why I didn't include it in the decision, but we didn't have the right systems in place to know exactly how much fuel was left. So I ended with enough for two and a half more laps. So another, you know, that was just the, that was just like the, the real information on how I could have, you know, made it, but. 26 years old, Indy Japan 300, describe the emotion of winning that race. I remember earlier in the season, a driver named um, Brian Herta telling me uh, he used to race for the team that I was racing for then and um, had since retired. And you're just hanging out at one of the tracks. And I remember him saying, like, one day you're just going to be doing the same thing that you've been always doing and you'll just win. And I was like, OK, cool. You know, sure. OK. And uh, sure enough, in Japan, that was what happened. You know, you're just doing the same thing that you're always doing. And it just worked out and I won. For me, it was a big relief. Like, given the fact that I nearly won the Indy 500 my first year, which was race number four of that season, I believe, maybe four or five. Um, you know, waiting, you know, taking that many more years to get there was, uh, was frustrating. Especially, I would say, to look back on 2007, um, which was my first full year with, um, with Andretti Green. That season, I was, I mean, like, I was top five every weekend and running really well and um, that was when Dario Franchitti was on the team and he won the Indy 500 in 2007 and from that point on 
like team instructions were you follow Dario and you help him win the championship. And I'm just young and I'm just like, okay, you know, like I get it. And you know, you do what you can. Like you can win if you have a chance, but it's like sometimes to win, you have to pass him. So like, I remember looking at that year and thinking how many did, how many opportunities did I throw away because I was doing what I was told kind of. And I'm sure it could be argued like, um, you could have gone to win if you like, you can go try and win if you want. But it's like, I remember that being the feeling that year of not feeling like I, I was supported in that decision. So, you know, in 2008 came when I finally won. It was like, finally, you know, like, look, I've been there the whole time. Haley Moore was telling me how you guys were passing the oh, yeah. and warm sake around Haley in the helicopter to the... And uh, yeah, we, we Airport normally then, afterwards, like I think I probably argued for probably 10 seconds about like, no, I want to stay and go out in Japan and go out in Tokyo in the Rapungi district and like have a good time and celebrate the win. Um, but they're like, no, you have to go back to L.A. You're going to the Champ Car Race in Long Beach. And then we're going to go to New York and do media. And it was just like, whatever. You guys were cut off on the plane? Oh, yeah. So, but on the helicopter ride from the, uh, from the track to the airport, Tony Kanan gave me the humongous bottle of sake. And it was just being passed around in a circle until we finished that. And then we got to the airport and then got in the airplane, drank all the champagne. Then we drank all the vodka. And I think maybe, maybe, I don't know if we drank all the vodka. I think we drank all the vodka, but we definitely ran out of maybe like cranberry juice or pineapple and then I mean we just crushed it and um, so Scott Dixon was on the flight and then sitting right behind me was Dan Weldon and um, so like we just we just partied hard and it was um, I, I don't I think we went to Waffle House maybe when we got in and then I remember having uh, and it was like late at night and I remember having to get up at like 2:45 in the morning for hair and makeup to make East Coast morning news the next day and then go to the track to the race for the champ car race and then head to New York right afterwards. Like, thank God I was young and didn't get hung over so easily. Nowadays, I'd be like, you know, I'd be in like. Oh, please, you're still young. I'd be getting an IV and, yeah. you know, definitely eating Zofran to make sure that I could function. How would you explain the difference between NASCAR and IndyCar? Well, there's different parts of it. I mean, people-wise, when I went to NASCAR, I remember feeling like, so I lived in England, then I came back to America, IndyCar felt so American. And then when I left IndyCar and went to NASCAR, I was like, oh my God, NASCAR is so American. There's so many foreign and European people in, uh, in IndyCar. So it's, um, you know, international, I guess you could say. Felt much more international, IndyCar. Um, and um, there's definitely a lot of posing. I always felt like in, in IndyCar, everybody was like, you know, who could go to the hauler earlier to show they were more committed? Who was, people would like not have a drink the entire season because it was the season. You know, and then you go to NASCAR and it's like, whatever. And like, you know, people are rolling in on helicopters an hour before practice starts and, you know, out like crushing beers the night before. Like, I mean, it's just like, okay, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but maybe some people crush beers, I don't know. <laughs> um, but definitely like so much more friendly, like loosey-goosey, like have fun, you know, be friendly. Um, so friendly, I would say, and less posing, less maybe faking it, you know, um, fronting. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, the racing was, you know, racing was different because it went from not being able to touch each other on the track to being able to bump. So, you know, that's just a difference between the 
body work in the cars. The, the steepest part of the learning curve for you um, from IndyCar to NASCAR would be what and if you had to do it over again, uh, would you make the same decision to make the switch? Um, I mean, I think I did what I could. I mean, I did a whole season of Nationwide before I went to Cup, so that was a recommendation. I didn't really want to do that, but I did that. I feel like I did a good job of giving it a shot. I think what I didn't realize was just how, you know, the old movie Days of Thunder, there's nothing stock about a stock car. So true. And, you know, the teams always make a really big difference. And, um, you know, not just team itself, but then like the individual cars within the teams. I think that's why you see the drivers thanking the guys at the shop because and people working on the cars because it's a big deal. It makes a big difference. And so, you know, that kind of goes back to that whole getting people to believe in me and what I could do and putting in the amount of effort that it's going to take to get there and how, you, you know, one believes in you that's just not enough. Like there's that one person can't build the whole car or, you know, do everything. That was, that was the hardest part was just that there was so much that was out of my control. Um, I look back and indie cars are much more, much more even than stock cars. Looking back, do you think you would have preferred to stay in um, Indy I'm or totally not a regretful go person. Go to NASCAR or I'm try Formula a, One? Or, yeah. yeah, I'm not a regretful person. Yeah. I'm not a, uh, like, I don't look back and think I wish I would have done it different because I'm happy where I am now. But, um, and uh, everything leads to, you know, one thing leads to the next in life. And so, yeah, I'm, it didn't go as well as I wanted, but I learned and it was a great experience and I had fun doing it. Um, some stuff wasn't fun and that's why I ended up retiring. What made 2017 the hardest year of your career? Well, for various reasons. I mean, like my primary sponsor left and I'd never been in that scenario before. And then it was about what team to go to, but then me going like, hmm, like I'm not gonna take a step down. Like I'm not gonna go to a team that doesn't, wouldn't presumably give me a, the same, if not a better chance of, of performing and doing well. Um, so, yeah, it was the decision about what I needed to do with my life moving forward and if I was going to hang on a little longer and just sort of take a performance cut and a pay cut and just continue to be out there because I didn't know what else to do or just take a leap of faith and move on. Brooke was saying when uh, bad stuff would happen in 2017, you would text her. What sorts of texts would you send? Um, Oh man, well, you know, I had, uh, I had, you know, work drama, relationship drama. Like, I mean, my whole life was shifting. Like uh, the biggest decisions, like moving, leaving a relationship, l like quitting my, like letting go of my job and doing something else. Um, there was just, there was a lot going on. How did you juggle um, everything going on? compartmentalize. I think drivers are pretty good at that because we go from smiling, taking photos and shaking hands 10 seconds before getting in the car to drive 200 miles an hour. So, you know, just flipping that switch of like work weekend, oh my God, deal with life. Work weekend, deal with life. Um, so yeah, you just flip flop back and forth and get by. So I, I was surprised uh, when I, I read this, you said sometimes you'd be disappointed in a race when you realized you weren't even halfway through the race. And then in IndyCar, you would do these mind exercises to stop yourself from feeling miserable. Um, the last time you genuinely enjoyed racing, you think would be when? Oh, what an interesting question. 
Hmm. Every now and again, there'd be a run <clears throat> in a race where it was just like magic. And I can remember one at Richmond. So I feel like that was something that one of them last year. And I feel like I like passed half the field in one run. Like it just was amazing. What was involved for you in getting to the mental space where you realize I, I don't love racing anymore? Uh, actually, it happened years ago. Um, I remember sitting in my girlfriend's kitchen in Scottsdale and, you know, we were having a deep conversation and I remember like breaking down and there was various things going on in my life, like work, relationship and, you know, whatever. And so I was feeling, I was vulnerable and I remember just saying out loud for the first time ever, like, I don't love racing. And I was like, oh my God, what did I just say? And I was like, I lost it even more. And I was like, that's true. Like, I don't, I love parts of it and that's what's kept me going. But like the actual, if I had free time, go to the track and drive around and have, no, like that doesn't interest me at all. I would rather go meditate. Um, <laughs> I just like, it just doesn't, my, I just don't, it's not, doesn't sound fun to me. Mm -hmm. um, now, mind you, I, you don't do something for 27 years and, you know, get to the level I was at without, you know, loving it. You just like, there was parts of it that I loved the most. So yeah, that was back probably, I feel like that was like the end of maybe 14 or something. It was years ago. And, um, you know, think nothing of it. I mean, I didn't have any intentions in stopping at all. And then, you know, years go by and um, then 17 comes and, you know, primary sponsor leaves. And and uh, I don't want people to think that they left because they were bought by private equity. Then usually then at that point in time, they stopped using, spending advertising dollars. And, you know, that's what we were as a race team was advertising. So they left and, and uh and then at the same time, my wine launches, my clothing line launches, my um, book is, uh, you know, f well underway and launches at the beginning of the next year. And um, so I was in the midst of doing a, a trial run with, um, with the workout program for the book at that point in time. And so um, I had all these other things going on. And so, you know, when they, at first in the beginning of 2017, I thought to myself, like, oh no, I'm not ready to be done. Like, and it felt good to say that. It felt good to feel that. And then as time went on, I just realized, nah. And the year wasn't any good anyway. And it was like one more reason, like, what? Maybe, probably have it be like this again. I mean, I've tried every which way possible. I've done everything I possibly can to be successful and, and run, run, run well. And it just doesn't feel like it's for me. And so why do I think that, you know, it's going to change. On the sponsor front, I believe the thought creeped into your head at some point, like, why can't people find money for me? Do they want me here? Um, explain that. Um, well, I think that, you know, um, I mean, a lot of times I had brought the sponsors because they liked me and they were there because of me. Um, but, you know, at some point in time, most drivers, they get the, the team find some money. And so, you know, you know, I think I was easy road for most teams where I brought it and it was full sponsorship, and so, you know, they had to be motivated to go find me sponsors, and, you know, motivation varied. Why do you think that was? Maybe they just wanted something new. Again, maybe they didn't believe in me and they wanted something new. Maybe they just wanted to take the easy money. Is, like, that what you believed? Um, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes. I think there were some people along the way that worked, for sure, but I think in general it was, you know, easy money. I mean, in that, and at that point in time, that's also what happened. I mean, there was a driver with a sponsor that came to the team um, and had a full sponsorship. So that's the easy option.
for sure. The role GoDaddy played in your career would be what? I mean, they just created so much awareness for, for my name, for my brand, for what I did. Um, you know, we both used each other really well. I mean, I needed this sponsor and they were a fantastic sponsor and they needed, a, you know, they needed to advertise and, and create awareness for their brand um, and, uh, and get noticed. And they did a great job of that. So, you know, all the Super Bowl commercials and then for GoDaddy to come back at the end and sponsor me for the double for the Daytona 500 and Indy 500 um, in, in 18 was just really um, proved how well we worked together and how effective we were for each other. And what people might not know about that is you actually negotiated that deal yourself, I, I believe. Yeah, so pretty much. what was yeah. involved with doing that? I mean, it really was a simple case of like, uh, you know, looking at how much it was gonna cost to run, run for the 500, each 500, and knowing kind of that budget and knowing what I was prepared to do these races for and knowing how much it cost me. And, um, you know, just going like, I think we need this. And um, so, yeah, and, and going in and also telling them how, talking about, not telling them, but understanding what they needed and what I needed and who we were as brands at this point in time, because a couple years had gone by since we had been together and um, realizing that we were more aligned than ever um, as brands, and so it was perfect. So uh, 2018, you just finished the Indy 500. NASCAR is at Rainy Pocono. Where are you and set the scene? That was after the last race and, you know, here in beautiful Napa for Auction Napa Valley, which is a gigantic charity event that raises like, you know, 15-ish million dollars a year for valley, um, valley charities and valley, um, you know, things like the fires coming through and um, so supporting the valley in general. And so, um, you know, coming here and it's like beautiful, you know, it's so beautiful out, sunny, drinking champagne in the morning and I'm like, or we could be in Pocono. Mm, I think I'm in the right place, you know? What do you enjoy about wine? Um, well, I love drinking it. I drank wine in England and then coming back here, I mean, I, you know, still like wine and um, took a trip here in 2006 and was just down the valley and uh, at a place called Quintessa and uh, was set up by my agent at that point in time. And, you know, it was a beautiful morning and rose petals leading out to the grassy knoll in the middle of the property which I found out later wasn't for me, it was a wedding the night before. But anyway, rose petals on the way out, picnic table, beautiful view looking south. The like fog is like, like clearing out and pulling back down into San Francisco, into the bay and, and just being like, it's like 10 a.m. and I'm drinking white wine, it's amazing. And wow, it'd be so cool to have something like this someday. And thinking to myself that like, obviously dreaming about that and then also thinking that maybe that would only remain a dream, maybe. Um, and you really had that thought even yeah. then, the oh, yeah, first yeah. time? That was okay. literally like, I mean, it wasn't the very first time I'd been here, but it was the first time I really experienced mm -hmm. Napa well. Um, like private tastings and stuff like that. Like that's the only way to go. Like you can go to cellar doors, sure, but like you really want the backstage pass. You want a barrel taste. You want, a, you want personal one-on-one -on -one to explain the vineyard, explain the wine, explain, explain the, you know, varietals, how much is produced, you know, the whole, the whole scene, like just understand the comp, the, what you're drinking. But I, like in my mind, I thought, oh my God, it's like probably $50 million to have a winery. And I thought, I don't have that. And I definitely 100% thought yet. 
because I definitely believed I would have $50 million someday. And um, so I was like, yet. And uh, anyway, I saw this at the end of 2008 and uh, 2009 bought it and um, started the process of, you know, um, permitting and plans and erosion control meetings and, you know, they even on every new property to plant, like they have to go around and check and see if there's any um, rare artifacts, rare plants, so that you, if you, there is, you can't plant there, you can't dig it up. So anyway, you have to go through all those processes. So it takes a long time. So um, the, the planting took years from that point on. And so 2014 was the first year that, um, uh, was the first vintage that was for sale. So, you know, bought it in 2009. It took till 2014 before something was actually ready to be, the 14 was ready, but sold in 17. So there you go. So 2009 to 2017. How much of an educational process has it been for you? I mean, I love the whole process. So I just slowly learn. It's not like I went immersion style and, you know, did a course or something like it's for me, it's just, um, coming to the Valley, going and doing wine tastings. Like while I'm here, like I'm going to plan a wine tasting at someone else's place because that's what I loved doing when I first came. I still love doing that now. I also love seeing other properties, hearing other stories. Um, and it's like, I feel like it's one of those communities where um, it's a little more of an all for one kind of community instead of competitive. So, you know, I love that sort of mindset. And, um, and uh, there's plenty of we make a lot of wine here in this valley, but there's plenty of wine needed in the world, so there's enough for all. How did the experience building this vineyard compare to what you would have expected? I don't know if this sounds bad, but I mean, I ended up, you know, drinking a glass of my wine off the property for the first time and going like I look, everything was done here to make sure it was done at the highest level. Like, you know, my winemaker helped pick the property. Like, so it's like grade A plus plus soil and helped, you know, pick the farmers and the rootstock and the clones and, you know, like everything to make it the highest level performing vineyard possible. But when you drink that first glass of wine, you go, and I was like, oh, thank God, it's really good. <laughs> you know, you just don't know. Because, Were you nervous? Sure, Were you, you always hope it's going to be really good, um, but you don't know until you get it. So, you know, you're left up to nature and, um, you know, the process and the people that are in place and, you know, hoping that it all was done at that highest level, even though that's the intention and that's what you think's happening. Um, you know, there's plenty of things in life that surprise you, but I was surprised in a, in a, in a, in a relieved way that, damn, this is just as good as I hoped, if not better. So this kind of ties into food and uh, working out, but you had uh, IVF treatment to uh, freeze your eggs. Um, explain how the hormone treatment changed your body. And why I decided to write a book on how to, like, a good fitness program well, and I was diet. Get yeah, to that that's kind of yeah. how it goes. Um, through the process, like, I mean, you're jacking your hormones around so much. I mean, just like crazy. And, uh, and so I learned what hormones can do to the body. And so while I didn't have, I mean, I think I broke down and started crying randomly, like maybe two or three times. Um, I gained like four or five pounds in two weeks, which is not possible when you eat the way I, like I'm sure I probably was even more disciplined because I couldn't work out. And, um, and so, 
yeah, I, I, I was like, well, I'm gonna have to try something new because they said a month will go by and you'll, you'll have a cycle and then everything will balance back out. And um, that did not happen. Um, so I, I started doing two day workouts and then I started, I was already gluten and dairy free, but then I decided to try full paleo, which is eliminating grains and beans um, and most sugars. So anyway, so I was like, all right, here we go. And I was only gonna do paleo for a week, but I started doing it and I haven't stopped. That's been years, <laughs> and uh, and then through the through the program, through the workouts and doing two a day workouts a couple times a week, I was like, oh my god, like it it was so effective, and I was like, man, um, how is it effective? Are you just like uh, losing weight and leaning out and getting stronger and feeling better? So that's kind of what led to um, writing the book. Um, there was a. A, a writer that w was it wanted to know if I was interested in writing a health and fitness book, and I was like, I actually think I have something to say, but it, this is not a tell-all. This is not like a, a, this is not a biography about my life. This is going to be like an educational health and wellness and fitness book with a program that has been more effective than anything else I've ever done, and I've worked out since I was 14 years old. So, um, so you know, 20 some years later, I've finally found like the most effective thing. And what did you want to get across? In and it? so I wanted. So the book got broken down into three sections: mind, body, in the beginning, then the workout program, and why the you know chapters on supporting why the program is laid out like it is, and then food, and so the recipes as well as you know, information about why to cut certain things out and why to add certain things in or eat more of them. And I worked my ass off on it for a year and a half. So it was a lot more work than oh the my last God. go around. I decided that I was going to do whatever it took to be successful. And it was 100% my worst paying job. I ended up having to have the writer come down to me because he was not understanding my mission with the book and um, spend time with me to see how I worked out, see how I ate and sat down and actually talked about the goals for the book. I wrote the workout program, uh, tested the whole entire workout program, ran a trial group for three months for the workout program, and did a forum every day talking to people about what, you know about it, um, building a website for it so that they could get the information and get the workouts, um, writing all the content for it because the the writer was just regurgitating stuff that he had already written before. I'm like, I don't think you're getting it, so I had to write the entire content for the for the website. And, um, and then um, the recipes, um, writing the recipes for the book as well as photographing them then, which I didn't have to photograph them, but I was gonna have to pay for them to be photographed anyway. So I'm like, why don't I just get a decent camera? Let me just try this. So I did. Um, so I wrote and photographed all the food, um, writing all the recipes down, which for someone who really cooks, you don't measure. You just go like this. Um, I don't even measure when I bake, so that's probably why I'm not the greatest baker. Um, but, uh, but so writing down exactly how much you use and then writing instructions for every recipe. And there's 50 of them. Um, and then when the chapters came through, it was all like little blurbs kind of just lit, that went in a long line on a PDF or something. And I'm like, I'm so confused, I don't even know where to start. So then I was on a flight and I wrote down the outline for the book. And then I sent that through. And then I wrote a base for every single chapter of what I wanted the creative direction to be. It went from like one paragraph to like five long paragraphs of, of information for each chapter. And instructions on what, uh, what technical information I wanted, what research and studies had been done. I asked for like, find a study on this. I want to know about that. Um, so he kind of became like the researcher that would go pull that information um, and have charts and graphs in there. And then the, um, 
the workout program, there was before and after photos, testimonials. Um, so there was, you know, interviews with everybody with like a select like dozen people that did really well and loved the program and had great results. I mean, it was just a year and a half of constant. Um, so it's just a lot of work. Um, love and relationships. Your sister, in an article I read from many years back, was uh, quoted as saying, I always wanted to be a mom where that's not really something she's had, m meaning you. How's that desire changed over the years on your end? I mean, kids have crossed my mind since I was in my, you know, early 20s, for sure. Like, you know, you come across some cute kids along the way, and you're like, oh, that's cool. Or you think of the idea of it, and you're like, you know, I, I was always very focused on racing and was never going to quit racing for it. But, like, surrogacy crossed my mind plenty of times. Um, and, uh, you know, it just was not in the cards for so long um, because of, it, you know, two people have to want, to sit, want the same thing. And... Um, it never was like that. Did her having kids? Uh, yeah, her like, kids. Like I, yes, desire? I mean they're so fun. They're just so great, and so I, I love seeing her kids, and um, they make me inspired to, you know, want them because they're fun. They, they're they're really just amazing little human beings. What does Danica Patrick look for in a life partner? <laughs> um, well, I think you just want to be with someone that um, reciprocates. Right, someone who's going to love at the same level, and the same um, same way, um, or the way that you need it. Right? I mean, there's like a you know great book called The Five Love Languages, and you know everybody receives, feels love, or receives love, you know, in a ver few variety of different ways. And so, you know, if your you know love tank stays full based on that, and you know, I think ultimately the most important thing is that. You want to grow together and you know I feel like over time like I've observed that if you don't if you're not growing together in the same way it doesn't work you can be super compatible not compatible it doesn't matter it hasn't worked out in the past. So what matters is that you want to grow in the same way. You want the same things um, because that's, I think, people kind of grow out of each other. They grow in different directions. Or one grows and one doesn't. And then you just end up going, eh, not for me anymore. Like, I can't stay here. I'm, I have to keep going. And, um, and so I think, that's, I think that's like a fundamental core necessity for a partner. Why do you think it works with Aaron? Um, well, I think we want to grow in the same way. I mean, it's not like we've got, you know, 15 years of marriage to tell you that it worked out. But yeah. I believe that we want to grow in the same way. We both have the same interests. We both have the same core beliefs and opinions. And are, we're open-minded people. And while we, we do have a lot of hobbies the same, we have a few different ones. But generally, we're like similar people. And, but most importantly, we want to, we want to grow. How strange if at all is it for you to all of a sudden be with somebody who, you know, has the same level of fame as you and also had an extraordinary amount of financial success? Well, I finally found someone who pays for things. <laughs> there you go. That's never happened. Ever. Like, I would buy dinner, literally. So Listen, wait, I'm used somebody's to it. I'm never, telling wait, you, they've never bought dinner. Super uncomfortable. Yeah, like I mean, I would buy dinner most of the time. It was super uncomfortable 
in the beginning with Aaron, like to have him paying for things because it was so out of the norm for me. And you're sure that's just not you setting the precedent that you wanna buy dinner? It's just a pattern. Like I had to break that pattern of like, I got it, like, let me take care of you, you know? Like that's how I do it. But I think it's also good because no one's really done that for him either. And so, you know, we both do stuff, but yes, he pays for most things. What do you think <laughs> each of you like about one another? I really think it's that we both are interested and op interested in similar things, um, and that stems from being open-minded people. Um, you know, um, yeah, like it all really started with me asking if he was stalking me on the astral plane, and then it went from there. So uh, what? Yeah, exactly, because people don't know what that means, but he knew what that meant, and then it just went from there, and we were like, oh my God, you. Wait, you know, but that what you like this? Oh my God! Like we're like we had been friends for six years, five, six years, and um, like just friends, as in like, hey, how's it going? Or like, oh, congrats on the game, or good race, or you know, sometimes I didn't hear from him for a whole year, and then I'd hear from him a couple times the next year. I mean, it was very sporadic, but definitely friend based, and so, you know, it's just one of those things where we both went, what? We're interested in, in unique things that not a lot of people are. And we're also very open-minded people. So, um, you know, we love to learn and educate ourselves. And so, you know, when he buys me books called like the holographic universe, I'm like, this is awesome. You know him, I mean, and I don't, I think people generally know this about him, but maybe not at the level. Like, I love that he's smart. I mean, he is a super, in, super intelligent person. I love to grow and so, and learn more. And he can help me do that. All right, two quick uh, unrelated uh, stories that they found kind of funny that I want you to tell as we wrap up. I read the Russian oligarch who uh, bought uh, President Trump's Palm Beach estate hired you back in the day uh, to take you yeah. to take him around the racetrack. It was what this was that Russian billionaire's like? 42nd birthday, and I think his 25-year-old girlfriend was throwing him his birthday party, which included variety of things, one of which was for me to drive him around a racetrack in a sports car. Um, and so we did that, and I didn't realize that like certain hand signs at one point on lap number two meant stop. I thought he was like having a good time, so we did another lap, and then um, he felt sick afterwards, so I guess I gave him a good ride. And then afterwards, we, um, you know, we just casually uh, joined him to go have lunch with Clint Eastwood. How'd that go? <laughs> I feel like it was a good thing I was there because I did a lot of talking. But it was very fun, it was very cool. I mean, Clint Eastwood, are you kidding me? Uh, the Bora Bora trip with your sister mm -hmm. where you uh -huh, each Bora realized Stora. when you got there that this place was way more expensive than yeah, you thought it I was. Yeah, I thought I wasn't gonna have enough credit cards to pay for the trip. Because I think at that point in time, I had credit cards that had maybe like a, a $1,000 limit, a $2,000 limit, a $2,500 limit. And like this place was $1,000 a night to stay there. And then we went to what seemed like we were getting invited to like a luau kind of thing that was a buffet. And we had water and it was like a, almost $200. And I was like, we're not getting out of here. So what we started doing and not on top of it, we called it Bora Snore because there was no one there and it was so boring. Um, like there was, it was like, it was like a lover's retreat, not a sister retreat, but I had, I was dead set on going to Bora Bora. This is when you first got into racing and first started well, making yeah, a little I mean, bit of money. Well, I was young. Yeah. I like, I, I mean, honestly, I, th I had a boyfriend then and I was like, I'll take him to Bora Bora. And then we broke up and I was like, I'm still going. 
So I took my sister. So Brooke and I went to Bora Bora and Bora Snora, and I didn't think I was going to have enough money to leave. I thought I was going to have to work in the kitchen. Um, but um, so what we would do is we would eat breakfast like at the very last minute, and then we would steal jams, chilies, and mustards and bread rolls to take back to the room. <laughs> and we would like try and skip lunch so that we didn't have to spend $200 on lunch. And then mom packed what we called sabotage in our bag, which was a gigantic bag of trail mix. And we were like, oh no, we're not gonna eat that. We're on the GSP, the Get Skinny plan. We're not eating that trail mix. But we were starving to death because we were trying to skip lunch, so we ate that. We ate that bag of trail mix within like three days. And um, anyway, turns out I had enough credit cards and we left, but, um, but it was a great trip. Thank you very much. Okay. We'll end on that note. <laughs> Thanks for listening to my interview with Danica Patrick. To see Danica give me a tour of her Napa Valley Vineyard, go to youtube.com forward slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.